miss. May I help you? I'm going to my room. Uh, do you have a key? Oh, I forgot that cardboard thing. I'm on the top floor. You're a guest here? I'm with a friend. Mm -hmm. And who would that be? Edward. 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 Edward, uh... Mm -hmm. He knows me. Dennis. Yeah. Dennis, did you just come off the night shift? Hmm? Yes, sir. Do you know this young lady? She's with Mr. Lewis. Mr. Lewis. That's it. Edward Lewis. Thanks, Dennis. Evidently, she joined him last night. Thank you. Oh, God, what now? What? What? What is with everybody today? Come with me and have a little chat. I'm thank you, Dennis. Thank you. And what is your name, miss? What do you want it to be? Don't play with me, young lady. Vivian. Thank you. Vivian. Well, Miss Vivian, things that go on in other hotels don't happen at the Regent Beverly Wilshire. Now, Mr. Lewis, however, is a very special customer, and we like to think of our special customers as friends. Now, as a customer, we would expect Mr. Lewis to sign in any additional guests, but as a friend, we're willing to overlook it. Now, I'm assuming that you're a... Relative? Yes. I thought so. Then you must be his... Niece? Of course. Naturally, when Mr. Lewis leaves, I won't see you in this hotel again. I assume you have no other uncles here? Good, then we understand each other. Well, hello, Hope. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Hope you've been having a wonderful time celebrating and having some time off and uh, celebrating freedom and that sort of thing. Can we just praise God for the volunteers in this church, whether it's the band or the uh, production team or the Hope Kids volunteers or ushers and greeters? So many. You are an awesome church on a holiday weekend. Just amazing. So uh, our theme this year at Hope is 12 books in 12 months. Each month, we're taking a, a deep dive into a different book of the Bible. The hope is we can become more biblically fluent as a congregation. We want to be as familiar as we can possibly be with biblical stories and biblical themes because we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's the holy scripture, and it is useful for helping us understand who God is, what God is up to in this world, what God is up to in our lives, what's the best way for us to live our lives, what's the best way for us to relate to one another. We want to become more biblical as a congregation. Part of what we mean when we say we want to be more biblically fluent is this idea. We are learning to love the Bible for what it is, not what we want it to be. Let's all read this out loud together. We are learning to love the Bible for what it is, not what we want it to be. Because it's really easy for us to approach Scripture with our own agenda, isn't it? Very easy for us to say, there are things that I want to be true and there are uh, ways that I want the world to work and so I'm just going to pick and choose different parts of the Bible that back me up. And we've seen people use scripture in twisted and distorted ways in order to justify behaviors that are anything but biblical. We don't want to do that. We want the Bible to guide us, not the other way around. And so we want to become more biblically fluent. We want to learn to love the Bible for what it is, not what we want it to be. It's the first weekend of the month, and so we're starting a new book. Uh, this month, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Esther. And if you grew up in the church, if you grew up going to Sunday school and vacation Bible school or watching Veggie Tales with your kids, it's possible you have kind of a Disney princess understanding of this book and this character in the Bible. 
But if we're really serious about learning to love the Bible for what it is and not what we want it to be, it might be good for us to take a closer look at Esther. Because upon even a, a little bit of a deeper dive, we see Esther might have more in common with Julia Roberts' character Vivian in the movie Pretty Woman than she has with, I don't know, Cinderella or Jasmine or Ariel. This book is an R-rated book. And I'm going to do my best to keep the message PG-13. Uh, the story has a happy ending, and we will get there three weeks from now. Today, if you came to worship hoping for an uplifting, hope-filled message, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it is not going to be that for you. The, come back next week, come back the week after that, come back for Vacation Bible School and Taste of Hope weekend, and we'll celebrate because that's how this story ends, with an awesome celebration of the goodness of God. But in order for the celebration to be everything that it can be, we have to allow for the beginning of the story to be the opposite of happy. And that's actually what the Bible tells us. So in order to understand what's going on in Esther, we want to put it in its appropriate historical context. I've seen a lot of you on Facebook and, and social media posting pictures of vacations and trips that you are going on. It reminded me a couple of years ago, our family did a, a road trip to Washington, D.C. and uh, New York City. And our son Dalton was going into his senior year of high school that summer, and he sat up front with me and was kind of the navigator, the co-pilot. And when you're in that seat, you get to pick what we listen to. And so we listened to podcasts, hardcore history podcasts by Dan Carlin. Uh, three episodes we listened to on that road trip, King of Kings 1, King of Kings 2, and King of Kings 3. Each podcast just a little over five hours long, 15 hours looking at the history of ancient civilizations. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire leading up to Alexander the Great. Don't you wish you could go on road trips with Dalton and me? <laughs> if you hate that kind of stuff, I would still encourage you, Google the Assyrian Empire. Google a couple of the kings, King Sennacherib, uh, King Ashurbanipal, and it'll take you about two minutes to see that these emperors led their empires with brutality. They led with fear-mongering, uh, they led with terror, they led with torture, and because we're trying to keep this message PG-13, we won't go into the details other than to say it worked. When you were conquered by the Assyrian Empire, you wouldn't put up much of a fight because you knew it would not end well for you. You just did what the Assyrians wanted you to do. And now, that gets us into the biblical account somewhere around the year 722 B.C. Uh, here's Israel and Judah, prime real estate in the Middle East. For much of human history, this was the, the great trade routes went through here. So if you're in Europe and you want to trade with Egypt or uh, Africa, if you're in Africa and you want to trade with Asia, you would take the trade routes through Israel, made it very valuable property. Uh, last month, we were looking at King David and his leadership. Man, he stabilized the region. And as a result, there was an economic boom for the people of Israel. They expanded their borders. They expanded the economy. Same thing happened under Solomon, David's son. But after Solomon, pretty quickly, there's civil war. And the kingdom is divided, and now it's very vulnerable to attack from the outsiders. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the year 722 BC, King Sennacherib comes from Nineveh with the Assyrian army, and he wipes Israel off the map literally. From 722 BC until what, 1948, 1949, there's no Israel 
on the map because of the Assyrian Empire. For the next 20 years, he tries to take out Judah and Jerusalem, and there is a fascinating story. 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, King Sennacherib and his army are taunting uh, King Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, and then God shows up in an incredible way that makes King Sennacherib head back to Nineveh, kind of, you know, what do dogs do with their tail behind him or something? I mean, he is just scared to death and leaves Judah alone. Eventually, the Assyrians get wiped out by the Babylonians. And you might be familiar with the name King Nebuchadnezzar. In the year 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes in. Go ahead and go to the next slide. And he lays siege to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem falls. They burn the temple to the ground. They tear down the walls around Jerusalem. The king, King Zedekiah, you can read about it in 2 Kings 25. Man, if you don't read the Old Testament, you are missing out. He runs for his life into the valleys, the wilderness around Jericho and and the Jordan River. Finally, the Babylonians find him, and they round up his sons, and they make King Zedekiah watch as they kill his sons, and then they gouge out King Zedekiah's eyes, put him in chains, and they carry him and the survivors of the siege of Jerusalem back to Babylon. Um, There are some really cool Bible stories that take place in Babylon, stories that we love, stories we talk about in Sunday school and at Vacation Bible School. We got Daniel in the lion's den. We got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And we love those stories. Why? Because they have happy endings. And because they have happy endings, we don't allow our minds to go to the brutal reality. Those stories had happy endings, but how many hundreds, how many thousands of people ended up in the lion's den in the fiery furnace, and their stories did not have happy endings. What I'm trying to help you understand, in order for an empire to be an empire in the biblical world, the rulers believed they had to be ruthless. They had to do whatever it took to maintain control, to stay in power. And that gets us to uh, the book of Esther. It takes place in the Persian Empire. The Persians eventually wipe out the Babylonians, and they've been in power for about 75 years when the book of Esther begins, and there's a king sitting on the throne by the name of Xerxes. We know something about Xerxes from the biblical account, but there's extra biblical material that helps us know a little bit about King Xerxes as well. The Greek historian Herodotus has some things to tell us about Xerxes. 500 young boys were gathered each year from the kingdom and castrated to serve as eunuchs in the Persian court of King Xerxes. I don't tell you that to shock factor or to gross you out. I tell you that because we have to understand this reality if we're going to understand what's going on in the book of Esther. Everything's at the king's disposal. Everything is at the king's disposal, including human bodies. (laughs) And that's the setup for the book of Esther. Ah, so... Uh, Sit back, and I just want to read for you the first nine verses of this book. Uh, These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days, 
a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days. It was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted." And we end with verse 9, at the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now, the author of the book of Esther begins this way for an important reason, trying to help us understand something about this guy, this king, King Xerxes. Very powerful, yes, absolutely. Has the power to oversee 127 provinces all the way from India to Africa. And he throws this party as a way of showing off his power and showing off his wealth. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? He's got power, but he's not really a man of character. What, what do we know about show-offs? Show-offs often show off because they, they show off to mask or to hide some insecurity or some inadequacy that they feel deep inside themselves. And, and Xerxes is showing off because of those inadequacies. As we read through the story, we will see he really doesn't have the ability to make a decision. He, he doesn't know what's the right thing to do and when's the right time to do it. He's always calling his advisors together. I don't know what to do. What do you guys think? No real character. Showing off. And he's hoping as he shows off, it will cause the people to say, oh, what a great king. We won't ever do anything to go against him. We see three parties happen in just the first nine verses of this account. The first one lasted 180 days, six months of serious partying, and it's not enough. Second party starts in verse 5, and it's just in the capital city of Susa for the people of that town. And part of what goes on in that, he's trying to overwhelm them with his wealth and his power. He says, we're going to let all the men, and that's an important detail, we're going to let all the men drink as much wine as they want to drink this week. I don't know what picture pops in your head, old school, animal house. I mean, it's just craziness and juvenile behavior all week long. And then the third party is thrown by Queen Vashti. Uh, much less juvenile, much more subdued in contrast to what the dudes are doing. And all of that leads up to verse 10. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he calls for his wife. He's been showing off all of his possessions. Now he wants to show off his prized possession. And what do you suppose he wants to show off about her? Her brains? Have her go to the chalkboard, do some math equations for all the guys? You think he wants to show off her personality? and have her lead the guys in a lively discussion of the decline of the Babylonian Empire. Now, the Bible tells us what he wanted to show off. It's in verse 11. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty. 
for she was a very beautiful woman. Now, the Bible doesn't go into details on what this would have looked like, how this might have played out. But the details that we do have, the details about kings and emperors in that time and in that culture, and the details about uh, King Xerxes and who he is, do you think he would have shown off his wife's beauty in a way that humiliated her or a way that honored her? And knowing what we know about King Xerxes and uh, his leadership, his reign, what are the chances that Vashti, his wife, the queen, would have felt freedom to decline the offer? Freedom to say, no, I don't really want to do that. Parade myself about, around a bunch of men who've been living the high life for a week, no thanks. And so it makes verse 12 all the more astonishing because Vashti says no. Vashti defies her husband. She defies the king. How do you suppose the king responds to this? Oh, my bad, Vashti. Of course, that was a horrible idea. I don't know what I was thinking. Thank you. For... No, that's not what he says. Verse 12 says the king was angry, furious, burns with anger. Why? Because he wants to be seen a certain way. He wants to be seen as strong. He wants to be seen as powerful. And his wife has just made him look weak. He goes into freakout mode. Now what am I going to do? Calls all of his advisors together. What do you think? What should we do now? And the advisors freak out as well. They're like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened in the Persian Empire. Now every wife is going to think she can say no to her husband. Not just in Susa, but in every region, every province of the entire empire. This is horrible. They pass a law that says women can't say no. And then they banish Vashti. She no longer gets to go before the king. I'm sure she's heartbroken over this. And it doesn't take very long before King Xerxes is lonely, poor guy. And he's like, oh, I don't know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe we should bring Vashti back. Well, maybe that would look weak. I don't know what to do. He brings his advisors back together again. What should I do? They say, we should look for a new queen. We should scour the empire looking for a new queen for our king. And what do you suppose the number one characteristic is they're looking for? Beauty. Beauty. And so they basically set up a Miss Persian Empire contest. Every province, remember how many there were? 127. They find the prettiest woman in their province and they send her, and it's probably more accurate to say the prettiest girl in the province. And they send her to be a part of the royal harem of King Xerxes. And the girl who catches the king's eye, the girl who turns his head, the girl who makes him say, wow, gets to become the ultimate trophy wife. Now, I know it's hard for us to believe in a culture like we live in that once upon a time there existed a culture so superficial that middle-aged men would think, I can impress people by using my power and my wealth to attract a young and beautiful wife. But once upon a time, a culture like that existed. No. Yeah, at 8 o'clock, it was too early for them. They didn't get that. <laughs> once upon a time, there was a culture that sunk so low, that was so trivial, that they believed the most important thing is the way you look and the clothes you wear. And do you have not just the right style, but the right brands? Do you have the right look? Because if you don't, your life isn't really that important. It's hard for us to understand that people could think that way, but once upon a time they did. It was the 1990s. It's really every generation, isn't it? But in this movie, Pretty Woman, and I don't know what you were thinking when the uh, clip started at the beginning of the message, 
I wanted to play a clip that would cause us to feel uncomfortable in church. And I hope that did at least a little bit. Mostly that clip was cute. I could have picked other clips that would have made us feel much more uncomfortable in church. And I wanted us to feel uncomfortable because these first two chapters of Esther should make us feel uncomfortable. If we're really learning to love the Bible for what it is, there's some discomfort in these two passages. And hopefully you felt some discomfort in that scene. A hotel employee talking to a woman of the night and reaching an agreement. Shortly after the agreement is reached, Barnard Thompson says to Vivian, you know, when you're walking around the hotel, you might want to wear something a little more appropriate. And it leads to one of the more iconic shopping scenes in movie history. Take a look. Yes, I am Mr. Hollister, the manager. May I help you? Edward Lewis. Ah, yes, sir. You see this young lady over here? Yes. Do you have anything in this shop as beautiful as she is? Oh, yes. Oh, no. No, no, no. I'm saying we have many things as beautiful as she would want them to be. That's the point I was getting at. And I think we can all agree with that. That's why when you came in here, you know what we're going to need here? We're going to need a few more people helping us out. I'll tell you why. We're going to be spending an obscene amount of money in here. So we're going to need a lot more help sucking up to us because that's what we really like. Oh. You understand that? Sir, if I may say so, you're in the right store and the right city for that matter. Anything you see here, we can do, by the way. Get ready to have some fun, okay? okay. Mary Pat, Mary Kate, Mary Frances, Tova, let's see it. Come on. Bring it on. Absolutely. Come on. Excuse me, sir. Uh, yeah. Exactly how obscene an amount of money were you talking about? Just profane or really offensive? Really offensive. I like him so much. How's it going so far? Pretty well, I think. I think we need some major sucking up. Very well, sir. You're not only handsome, but a powerful man. I could see the second you walked in here, you were someone to reckon with. Hollister. Yes, sir. Not me. Her. I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry. How are we doing, ladies? Edward would love that tie. Would you give her the tie? The tie. Take off the tie. Give the tie. The tie. He really wants to do this. He would go crazy about this tie. Who ordered pizza? Pretty woman, stop a while. Pretty woman, talk a while. Pretty woman, give your smile to me. Pretty woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty woman, look my way. Pretty woman, say you. I'm sorry. I was in here yesterday. You wouldn't wait on me? Oh. You work on commission, right? Uh, yes. Big mistake. Big. Huge. I have to go shopping now. The Bible tells us Esther was a pretty woman. Chapter 2, verse 7 says she's beautiful, she is lovely, but she's not pretty enough for King Xerxes. 
Uh, Chapter 2, verse 12, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments, an entire year of preparation before she could see the king. Uh, Question for really anyone in the room, I don't need a show of hands, but maybe this is for women in particular. Any of you ever spend more than an hour getting ready to go on a date? Uh, Any of you spend more time getting ready for the date than you spend on the actual date itself? Or any of you have more fun getting ready for the date than you spend on the date? Again, I don't need a show of hands. And I almost, you know, feel bad joking about it because Esther isn't getting ready for a date. Here's how the verse actually begins. I left it off the first time we read through it. It says, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she had to go through 12 months of beauty treatments before she's taken to the king's bed. There's this line that Vivian and her roommate, co-worker, Kit, repeat all throughout the movie, Pretty Woman. We say who, we say when, we say how much. Esther doesn't have a say. Esther and the other young women in that harem, they have no say. They have no voice. They are taken to the king's harem. It's the way the world worked in their day and age. In our day and age, we would say she's a victim of human trafficking. And she goes to the king and she catches his attention and she wins, quote unquote, the contest. She becomes the queen. She becomes arm candy for the most powerful man in the world. Um, This scene in this picture where Vivian is in the tub with all the bubbles and she's listening to Prince on her Walkman. What ends up happening is Edward and Vivian have a business negotiation. I've got a business proposition for you. He says, how much will it cost me for you to be my beck and call girl for the rest of the week? Esther ends up becoming the beck and call girl for King Xerxes. I want to pause here and just be clear about a couple of things. There's nothing wrong with beauty. God created it. Beauty is God's idea. God makes all things beautiful in his time. So there's nothing wrong with a woman wanting to look beautiful, nothing wrong with a man complimenting a woman on her beauty. But I hope we all know there is a line that gets crossed far too often. And the line has everything to do with purpose. For a woman, the line can get crossed when she makes beauty the purpose of her life, when she becomes someone who uses beauty to control and manipulate other people, when the great fear of a woman is what will happen to me if my beauty fades, will I still be lovable? She's crossed that line. And for a man, the line gets crossed when a man makes pleasure the purpose of life. When a man makes a beautiful woman her purpose is to somehow please the man. You know, I did a wedding Friday night. I did a wedding uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, When we do weddings at Hope, they take the wedding class and then they get assigned to a pastor to officiate and I get the opportunity to meet with them for just a little bit. And one of the things we talk about, the church cares a great deal about premarital sex. It seems to me we don't talk a whole lot about marital sex and how problematic that can be as well because... Too many men, Christian men, rather than loving their wives, are actually using their wives. King Xerxes does this with all 127 young girls of his harem. He doesn't love them, he uses them for his pleasure. And men of hope, make no mistake about it, you don't have to have a harem 
to use the women in your life this way. Maybe it's someone you're dating. Maybe it's someone you're married to. Maybe it's someone you work with. Too many Christian men view their female colleagues and employees this way as the the purpose. They say things and they do things that communicate the purpose of this female employee is to somehow create some kind of gross and creepy pleasure for the man. And it's just a joke. Can't you take a joke? No, it's not a joke. It's not funny and it's not okay even if for decade after decade after decade, culture has said it's okay. Now, thankfully, things are starting to change. Thankfully, things that for far too long, we've said, well, that's just okay. That's just the way it is. Finally, women are starting to gain a voice. But part of what I want us to understand is in this part of the story, Esther has no voice. She becomes the queen, but she is very much powerless. She's an exile. She's an orphan. She's brought to the king's harem. No choice, no say. She's taken to the king's bed. She's in the palace, but Mordecai, her cousin who adopts her, says, whatever you do, you got to hide your family history. Don't let the king know who you really are. Don't let him know you are a Jew or bad things are going to happen to you. So she's in the palace, but she's powerless. She has questions. She probably has anxiety. She is maybe hoping for the happy ending. But she's living with this day-to-day fear that something bad is about to happen. And that's where we're going to stop today. (laughs) Because it's 4th of July weekend. And we've been celebrating freedom for three or four days. But we know, we know far too many people in this world are not living lives of freedom. This is a map from International Justice Mission, an organization that's working to eradicate modern-day slavery from the face of this planet. The map shows well over 40 million modern-day slaves. It could be forced labor. It could be human trafficking. I was listening to Melinda Gates talk about the work she and her husband Bill are doing with their foundation in poverty-stricken places in the world. And she says one of the things that leads to what we would call modern-day slavery is arranged marriages, where she's seen girls as young as 10 years old get given away in marriage. They're blindfolded and led from their home to the home of her new husband, blindfolded so that when they want to run away from that horrible situation, they won't know the way home. And these are hard things to talk about. We, we like to just pretend them away. Like these sorts of things aren't happening in our world. But we got to talk about it. Because maybe, just maybe, for followers of Jesus Christ, God is saying to us, Use whatever power you have. Use whatever resources you have to help people who cannot help themselves, to help people who are powerless. And maybe that's what God needed to speak to you today. What are you going to do about some of these situations that are right around us? You don't even have to go around the world. Interstate 35, Interstate 80, major, major place where human trafficking is happening. The other reason I want to stop here where Esther is in the palace and she's powerless is because the reality is you and I find ourselves in powerless situations in our lives all the time too, don't we? Uh, Maybe it's, I don't don't know how I'm going to change this addiction. I don't have the power to overcome, to break this addiction. Maybe it's a broken relationship. You feel like you don't have any power to change that situation. Uh, Financial stress, debts, you don't have the power to do anything about it. Maybe it's doubts about God. In the midst of all these powerless situations, where is God? Did you know the name of God does not show up once in the book of Esther? It doesn't show up once. And, you know, 
Maybe it's easy to have faith in God when you get the Ten Commandments and God parts the Red Sea and all these miracle after miracle after miracle. But what do you do in these powerful situations and God seems hidden? Biblical scholars and biblical theologians write that that's a big part of what's going on in the book of Esther. It's this hiddenness of God. And how do you maintain faith? How do you hold on to faith when God seems absent? So we're not going to get to the happy ending today, but I do want to give you some good news. And that is that 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. So that when we find ourselves in these situations where we're wondering about the whereabouts of God... We look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we remember the promise of Jesus, I am with you always, even when we can't see it, even when we don't feel it, even when we struggle to believe it. God is with us. God is for us. And God loves us with a love we can trust. We remember that love when we come to the Lord's table. And we remember it was the night he was betrayed. Jesus took some bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Eat this and remember me when you eat it. Later in the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and remember me when you drink it. Would you stand with me and let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I want to invite the communion servers to come forward at this time, and as they're coming forward, some instructions for you. If you've never celebrated communion with us before at Hope, ushers will tell you when it's time for your row to come forward. They'll lead you to the nearest station. We'll give you a wafer of bread, and if you remember, don't eat it right away, but dip it in the dark-colored wine or the light-colored grape juice. We also have an allergy-free station available. It'll be right here uh, in the center of the room. Make your way to that if you're in need of that. Sometimes people wonder, am I really welcome at the Lord's table? You know, for the kings, the emperors of Assyria and Babylon and Persia, the idea was we got to be brutal, we've got to torture in order to control people. Now, we have a king who invites us to experience a very different way of life, a king who takes on the brutality and the torture in order to show his love for us, in order to say, come and eat, all is prepared. <laughs>